Are you guilty for what your parents did, what your ancestors did? Are you under the burden of generational guilt? Hello everyone, it is Thursday, July 16th, 2020, and this is Liberty Church Audio. I'm Pastor John. I'm worried about what I call our secular religion today that is very powerful. I call it a religion because it shapes how people view the world and offers us a sense of meaning, or for those who believe this religion, a deep sense of meaning and purpose in trying to overcome certain problems. But this is a secular religion. It is divisive, it is unforgiving, and it is without mercy or grace. It demands repentance without hope of reconciliation, and it comes from a godless philosophy. What is this secular religion doing? It's dividing people into groups of race, class, and gender in such a way that the unique individual becomes invisible. The person is lost in the group. You become invisible. Your neighbor becomes invisible. We see groups instead of people. It makes you see race or ethnicity first, or maybe it makes you see class first or economic standing. It may make you see gender or sex first, but all of this is a mistake. Gender, race, class, all of those things are real, but they don't come in first in what it means to be human, not by a long shot. The secular religion also describes these different groups in predetermined ways. They're noted only for a few characteristics, and if you are part of a group, it is assumed that you have a certain experience, a certain mindset and philosophy. It makes assumptions about how the group sees and experiences life, but making such assumptions, I think, can be the very foundation of prejudice, and it makes demonization of others very easy, because you've lumped all those people, so to speak, all those people into a predetermined group and you assume that everyone in that group thinks and feels and acts the same way. So what we see going on in our culture, I think, is being driven by today's secular religion, which says that these groups cannot really talk to one another or understand one another. They're so different in their experiences that no one can really reach each other. And I believe that only evil can come of that kind of thinking. The religion says that the relationship between all these different groups is nothing but a struggle for power. So I fear that this can only serve as a foundation and an ongoing motivation for an ongoing feud. So what do we do about all this? Because we see it driving so many stories in the news today. Well, we have to remember several things. People are made in the image of God. This, this is the deepest thing that you can say about a person. Psalm 8 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. So the psalmist is looking at the sky and seeing the vastness of the universe. And yes, the ancients knew the universe was vast. And they knew that God was even greater than that. And so 
the psalmist here, the poet, is saying, why would God ever think of us? But he realizes then, well, wait, you have made us, yes, a little lower than other spiritual creatures, but we have been crowned with glory and honor, and that glory and honor comes to us humans from God. So when we look at a person, when we look at a person, the first thing we should notice in them is the image of God in him or her. This is the base layer of their identity. And this goes far deeper than race, class, sex, age, ability, or disability, or whether they're born or pre-born. This is the base layer. This is the deepest reality about you. You're made in the image of God. So we're co-regents with God over creation. We've been made to relate to one another in love rather than a power relationship. And this love is something that should reflect the love that is in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Being made in God's image also means that we have self-consciousness, self-awareness, and rationality that is of a higher order than any other creature. It means also that we can relate to God. And all this gives us a dignity, kind of a scepter and a crown, for each individual, and it is wrong for any group or person to demand an individual to let go of that scepter or set aside that crown. It is not only wrong to murder someone, it's wrong to beat them up with two-by-fours in a riot, or to kick them in the streets in the mad contagion of a mob, or to steal their lives before they're born. But it's also wrong to curse people with our words. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in the image of God, who have been made in God's likeness. James tells us this should not be. People shouldn't be arbitrarily excluded or devalued or oppressed in a spirit of favoritism. Listen to James again. My dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And James is writing in the church context. There shouldn't be such favoritism. This, the, these problems should be ironed out and taken care of in the church first. And we should see this new way of living modeled there. Now, he is saying it's easy for the rich to oppress the poor. The Bible recognizes this. And James said that in this context, they were doing just that. It is a temptation for the rich and powerful to take advantage, and sometimes they do, and maybe oftentimes they do. But being rich and powerful does not automatically make you an oppressor. Even as far back as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, we see the commandment, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly, Leviticus 19.15. We do need to work for fairness and forgiveness at the same time. Fairness and forgiveness must work together, cutting through the tangle of our problems like the opposite blades of a pair of scissors, because without one or the other, 
we're not going to make any progress. God judges the individual. There's a key passage in the book of Ezekiel, it's chapter 18, where God is talking to those who have been taken into exile at the time of Daniel or around there. And they were beginning to grumble because of what had happened to them. And there was a proverb that had been circulating and in Ezekiel 18, God talks to them about it. He says, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And here's the proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, have you ever sipped lemon juice or something like that, and you felt your teeth set on edge? Uh, so if you have, you can almost feel this proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. What does that mean? It means that what the fathers do is carried over to the next generation. So they use this proverb as a way of shifting the blame for their circumstances back on the sins of their fathers, sins of their parents. Our parents have eaten the grapes, but we're the ones suffering the consequences. It's our teeth that are set on edge. So it's a way of saying God is being unfair, but God is not going to accept that, so he sends Ezekiel to say, As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Why? Because he says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. This is an interesting reminder that God is the judge, and all souls are under his jurisdiction. All souls are mine. So this tells us how God sees the world. This tells us what lens he uses for justice. Is he thinking in terms of groups or in terms of the individual? Well, the children of Israel were thinking in terms of groups. They said one group, the current generation, was suffering for the sins of the older group, the previous generation, and therefore they're blaming them. They were dividing people into the groups of fathers and sons or ancestors and descendants. But God says, I'm not operating that way. Rather, he says the soul... That's singular. That means the individual, the soul who sins, shall die. He judges the sinful actions of the individual. Now, in this chapter, he goes on to give three case studies to the people. The case study of man number one, man number two, and man number three. Man number one, of course, is a righteous man. He's a good guy in society. He says in verse 5, If a man is righteous and does what is right and just, and he does not oppress anyone. He, and then he gives a list of the things that he could do but doesn't. Evil things that he could do but doesn't. He says that this man is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So man number one is case study number one. He's a good guy. Man number two, though, is the son of man number one. And in verse 10, he says, If man number one fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, or who does any of these things, though... He himself as the father did none of these things. Or if the son oppresses the poor and needy or commits robbery, then he speaks of that son, shall he then live? God says he shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. In other words, it's his own fault. Man number one is righteous. Man number two, the son is unrighteous. And then man number two has a son. And we'll call him, for lack of a better word, man number three. But this is the son of the oppressor. But he's a good guy. Look at verse 14. 
Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He obeys my rules. He walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. God says, you got a good guy who fathers a bad guy who fathers a good guy. Each man stands on his own two feet before the Lord because justice is based on the individual. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So this is obviously as clear a declaration that justice is based on the individual as God can give. And then he finishes up by reminding us even further that God can forgive the unjust man. He goes on to say, If a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. God leaves open the possibility that an unjust man can turn around and be forgiven. And then he says, he will also hold the righteous accountable. If a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, none of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed. For them he shall die. So God is going to look at both sides of all these situations. God takes everything into account, and he judges, though, based on the individual. We know in the biblical narrative the gospel of Christ enters in because Christ died for our sins. The just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And it was an individual who died on the cross to save all of us individuals who, though we're made in the image of God, have also fallen from God and are individual sinners in need of grace, and we are grateful that it is available. But God is is talking in Ezekiel 18 about the role of the individual in justice, and he says it's primary. Thinking in terms of the collective, or thinking in terms of group identities, is not the first place to go. It's not the starting place from which we should think, even though obviously groups exist, but it's not where we start. So, no individual should be oppressed. No group should be oppressed. They should not be oppressed as a group because they are a collection of individuals. It is also possible for the unrighteous to stop oppressing. It is possible for the righteous to start oppressing. And forgiveness is available and possible for all. Liberty Church Audio is produced by Liberty Church of Cosby and is now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Subscribe to the audio there as well as at TuneIn plus Alexa. And you can find out more at LibertyPastor.com or on our Facebook page at Liberty Church of Cosby.